Well, thank you for being here tonight. Tonight we finish our series in Dumb Things Smart Christians Believe. Um, we were loading the PowerPoint a few minutes ago, and uh, I always get a laugh out of, it's the file called Dumb Things. You, you're going to speak on dumb things? Yes, I'm going to speak on dumb things. Really? Yes. And there's always kind of a, uh, should I import that into the computer or not? I'm not really sure about that. So makes me laugh. So tonight we do the last three dumb things. God brings good luck. A valley means a wrong turn, and dead people uh, go to a better place. And before I go too far, uh, I just want to say thank you um, for allowing me to speak these several weeks. Um, I want to say thank you to several other people, though. First to Larry Osborne. uh, That's the guy who wrote the book that's on the screen. I stole all of this from him. Nothing is original. So for those of you that have come up and said, thank you, this has been a blessing, send him an email. Um, He taught me, so that works out very well. Uh, Second to my wife, Julie. Thank you. Um, She has created space in our home and time in our home so that I can study and do this. Um, So very, very thankful for her. Um, I read a quote by Lecrae this week. It said, sometimes life's best gifts come in boxes that take a lot of work to open. Um, And sometimes you have to have time to open those boxes. So thank you for giving me the time to do that. Um, Third to Daryl for asking me to speak. And fourth to you guys for your consistency and encouragement. Um, So when you come up to me and say, thank you, that's been a blessing, if you will go tell her that's been a blessing too, that would be very helpful Um, because she's the one that's wrangled the kids uh, while I go and study some of this time. And those of you that have wrangled kids know that's sometimes fun and sometimes not. So just want to make sure we said that. So uh, this is the book. Um, I think I have stripped most of what was very good out of it. Is anybody interested in reading the book? I don't see a hand. I see a hand back here. Fantastic. Um, if you come to my Sunday school class, we give away books all the time. So thank you for raising your hand. Yes. Um, so I'm going to read you an extended excerpt as to why we're doing this material and uh, kind of Larry Osborne's take on the overview of the whole thing. He says, I've canceled and worked with many people who've made life-altering decisions based on what they perceive to be biblical principles only to discover too late that what they thought was biblical didn't come from the Bible at all. Most of the time, they were victims of a spiritual urban legend. And a spiritual urban legend is just like a secular urban legend. It's a belief, a story, an assumption, or a truism that gets passed around as fact. And admittedly, the consequences of some spiritual misconceptions aren't particularly devastating. But far too often, the consequences are spiritually devastating. So I'm going to stop there. How many of you brought an umbrella with you tonight? Why'd you bring an umbrella with you tonight? Because you think it's going to rain, right? I brought an umbrella too. And I've actually got four umbrellas up here. We'll talk about a couple of them. Um, I did this in my Sunday school class this morning on a different topic. But one of the things that the reasons that I am passionate about information like this is we see each other walking through life, right? We see each other doing this life together. And every once in a while, we'll see somebody doing life in a way that really doesn't make sense. And if you think that I'm going to have bad luck because of this, just hang on a second. I'm going to get to that. All right. Tonight's that night. Um, There's a problem with this umbrella, right? What's my problem with this umbrella? It's it's missing a little, right? And, And some of us go through life and our theology looks a lot like this. And when storms come and the rain comes and we're getting drenched, and we wonder why we're wet, well, it 
may be that what we believe isn't very thorough, right? So I want to take one of these, and I want to chuck it because that's no good. So others of us, I say us, have other umbrellas that it's a little more, right? A little better coverage. This will keep me drier, maybe, but still not going to be very effective, right? And the basic principle here is I want our faith to be complete, right? I don't want us to have gaps in our theology because so many of us walk around unknowingly that we have gaps in our theology. I don't want this for you. Um, And the other thing I don't want, toss this one over here. Some folks never use their theology. This is a brand new umbrella. It's never actually even been unraveled. Still has a tag on it, the little clip around the handle. This Velcro has never been undone. This kind of theology doesn't do you any good either. You can have the greatest theology in the world and it's all packaged up and you don't ever share it with anybody or tell anybody what you believe or put it into use. It's just as good as those with holes in it. Okay? So what I want you to have is I want you to have a theology. It's got some wear and tear on it. I want you to have a theology that's full, that you've used, that you've shared with somebody else in their life. This actually keeps the light out of my eyes. Can I have a volunteer? No, that's okay. Um, it does feel really good, though, not having that in your eyes. Uh, you see the difference here? You see this? And many of us walk around, and you've told me this, and you say, Jim, I, I have believed one of those dumb things, and I have walked around, and, and I've wondered why I got wet. I don't want to get wet. Right? I want to have a faith that works. So uh, that's my umbrella analogy for tonight. The rest of this quote by Larry Osborne, Think of the disillusionment that sets in when someone writes off God for failing to keep a promise that he never made, or the despair that follows a step of faith that turns out to have been a leap onto thin ice. But whatever the case, I encourage you to examine each one with an open mind and an open Bible. So why I picked this material? Number one, to encourage us to look to Scripture to test. Good job. We didn't even put it up yet. To test all things. We are constantly kicking the tires. Constantly. We accept nothing without comparing it to the truth of Scripture. Ever. And number two, to remove the disillusionment that comes when we rely on promises that God never made. Because that's awfully painful. And tonight, the first one that we'll cover is one that is extremely painful for so many that have been caught up into this garbage. So our schedule, week one, was introduction and faith can fix anything. Forgiving means forgetting, and godly home guarantees godly kids in week two. God has a blueprint for my life. Christians shouldn't judge. Remember, these are all myths. Week four, everything happens for a reason, and let your conscience be your guide. And tonight, God brings good luck. A valley means a wrong turn, and dead people go to a better place. Now, if you have missed any of these and you're interested in hearing more about them, there's a website at the very bottom of your handout, teachings.gym314.com. You can go there, and over on the right-hand side, there's links where you can read all of the teacher notes. This is what I teach from. You can listen to the audio versions of these. I'll have tonight's up in the next day or two, um, and you can find out more about these. So let's jump right into dumb thing number eight, God brings good luck. This one's very prevalent in our American churches extremely prevalent in our American churches. When I was in college, I took a class called Contemporary Theology. I had no idea what this class was about. Um, 
I don't know that I knew how to spell contemporary when I took the class, but I did at the end. That was helpful. Uh, contemporary theology. And it was at one point in the class, our professor assigned us a 10-page paper on some modern contemporary theology. I said, okay, what are the list of contemporary theologies? The only one I could spell was prosperity theology, so I picked it. The others were extremely complicated in name. They weren't in substance because most of the contemporary theologies are garbage. Uh, But prosperity theology was a topic that I didn't know anything about. I'm going to read you the introduction to my 10-page paper. Only in a materialistic society, plagued with greed, desire to have the best, and voracious appetites for things, could theology focused on health, wealth, and success survive and prosper. Prosperity theology is such a theology, with the motto, you can have what you can say. America is the fertile soil in which prosperity theology has thrived. No other country in the world sustains and fuels such a continuous focus on health, wealth, and success as does America. And here's what I, I wrote that in 1999. That's still true. And this, this garbage has gotten bigger and louder, and it's gotten prettier faces with easy-to-listen-to messages that are cotton candy. There is no stake there. So what is the prosperity theology proponents? They promise health and wealth. That's your next blank, health and wealth. Here's what Osborne says. He says, as for Jesus, he certainly never promised his followers a long run of good luck or earthly success. He promised forgiveness. I'll take it. He promised eternity. But winning lottery numbers, job promotions, good health, and riches, not exactly. We expect that God's, we expect that living God's way should cause most things to work out. Read that as good fortune. We also assume that high-handed rebellion against God should cause life to fall apart. And the only problem with this kind of theology is that we do not serve a quid pro quo God. Anybody know what quid pro quo means? What's it mean? This for that, right? You give me good, I give you good. You give me bad, I give you bad. Dave Barber calls this do good, get good, do bad, get bad. It's a great line. And most of us, at some point in our lives, most of us, there we go, most of us at some point in our lives have viewed our relationship with God as do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Right? That if I do this, then Jesus will be happy with me. Oh, I sinned. Jesus is really sad. And he's going to punish me. You ever thought like this? This was prevalent in my mind growing up as a kid. I thought when I got sick, that was because I had done something wrong. Well, I'd done something wrong. God's punishing me, right? When I did something wrong that my parents could see, they punished me. When I did something right that my parents could see, they rewarded me. Well, I just figured God was like that too. And the reality is, that's not exactly how God's economy works. And I'm really glad. Because if it was do good, get good, we'd never get any good, guys. And if it was do bad, get bad, all we'd get would be bad. Isaiah says that the best that we can do is filthy rags. And it's the, the words that are used there to describe that is not even something that I can discuss in mixed company. That's how bad that is. So if the best I can do is filthy rags, and I want to adhere to a do-good-get-good, do-bad-get-bad theology, this is not going to work out well. It's not going to be consistent. It's going to be like that umbrella with all the holes in it. It's going to have some problems. So 
Osborne goes on. He says, It's only understandable why so many of us would assume that being on God's side should bring good luck and success. It just makes sense. For most of us, it's hard to fathom why God would sit back and allow the wicked to prosper while they mock him and hassle his people. We wouldn't allow it if we were God, so why would he? Right? If you were God, would you let bad people run amok? No, and you'd be out of people in one generation. Right? There'd be nobody left. Smite, 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 smite. That'd be it. Hmm, guess we got to start over. Every generation would be a brand new version. We're on humanity version 427.2. Not good. So let me ask you a Bible trivia question. You ready? You got to think hard about this one. So Genesis chapter 1 is about what? Creation. The beginning of all things that we can see. Genesis chapter 2 is about what? Genesis chapter 2, anyone? Eve shows up. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Genesis chapter 3 is about what? Oh, the fall, sin, problems. They ate the fruit. Do bad, get bad. What did God do? He gave them a covering, and he told them they couldn't live there. Did he kill them? No. Did they deserve to die? Absolutely they did. But he didn't kill them. See, there's grace in the Old Testament. People think, oh, there's no grace. There's grace all over the Old Testament. Good gracious. The fact that the Israelites survived, the fact that our kids survive, right? I mean, it's just it's grace. Genesis chapter 4. What's the first story after the fall? I heard it over here. Who kills whom? Cain kills Abel. So we have a bad guy and we have a good guy. Who wins? The bad guy wins. The bad guy lives. Right? If you're watching this in a movie, the bad guy lives. And does God kill the bad guy? No. He marks him. He marked him. What do we learn from this? We have a perfect environment in Genesis chapter 1, perfect environment in Genesis chapter 2, perfect environment in Genesis chapter 3. We insert sin. Sin changes everything. Sin changes everything. We get to Genesis chapter 4, and the world is upside down. This doesn't take generation after generation after generation the first generation of people got to experience the world being upside down. Does this make sense? It's almost as if God's trying to tell us at the very beginning of the book that he wrote, don't expect the good guy to always win. Huh. But we think, yeah, but I'm special because I'm me. And I am the most important thing in the universe. Don't you know that if Jesus only had one person on the planet, he would have come and died for me? I am that special. And we don't like to think of ourselves as not special. Uh, one of my favorite movies um, says the line, You are not special. Uh, you are not a precious ray of sunshine. 
and your mother has lied to you. I love it. Osborne says, it's as if God is trying to tell us right off the bat that in a fallen world, lots of things won't go as we'd hoped or expected. In the same vein, Jesus knew what he was doing when he warned us to count the cost before stepping out to follow him. Sure, the rewards are incredible and the downside of rejecting him terrifying, but in the short run, being on his team is not always what it's cracked up to be. He knew our fickle tendencies. He knew how quickly we'd accept the good things and praise him for them and how quickly we can turn on him when things go wrong. You ever done that? You ever looked at God and shook your fist? Maybe not your physical fist, but you sure shook one in your mind. Said, what do you think you're doing to me? I have served you and you are not serving me back. That's one of the things that made Job such a righteous and rare man. So here's what Osborne says. He says, this type of theology creates a form of cultural Christianity filled with rituals, symbols, and rules that everyone abides by, but nobody believes. Ultimately, it plays God for a fool. Here's your blank. It's Eddie Haskell Christianity. Yeah. You remember Eddie Haskell? What show was Eddie Haskell on? Leave it to Beaver. And Eddie Haskell never did anything wrong, did he? I mean, he was the ideal model. You're laughing. You're Eddie Haskell had problems? What kind of problems did Eddie Haskell have? Eddie Haskell. <laughs> that was Eddie Haskell's biggest problem. Osborne goes on. He says, rather than giving us a little bit of luck in exchange for a little bit of obedience, God is much more likely to do something else. Spit us out. You didn't see that one coming, did you? You thought I was going to say, wrap his loving arms around us and hold us as only he can. He does that when he needs us to, when he needs to do that, yes. And I love it when Daryl prays that. But he'll spit us out too. He does not, he is not interested in lukewarm Christianity. Get on one side of the fence or the other. He's just not interested in that garbage. He goes on, he says, the thing we have to remember is that the benefits of righteousness aren't primarily found in earthly rewards. They're found in the next life. The great benefit is forgiveness. The great reward is heaven. Everything else is merely a small appetizer before the great feast. To measure the glory of the king's table by the finger food or the absence of finger food would be silly. Same for measuring God's goodness and rewards by yesteryear's fender bender or today's tragic medical diagnosis. Brian spoke here this morning and he was talking about the fact that we should not be content here. Content in a, this is my home, this is where I'm going to be, I am happy and thoroughly satisfied with the earth and all that is in it. This is not our home. God has something better. Thing, I want to break it to you. God doesn't bring good luck. It will not happen on this earth. If you're waiting, if I'm waiting for the day where everything will finally be smooth and no more problems, it ain't coming. Not here. It's not going to happen. So let me ask a question real quick. Is there anyone in the room that's older than 75 years old that would like to identify that? Older than 75. So have you found a place where there are no more problems in your life? Now, what you all can't see is that they both rolled their eyes when they said no. <laughs> it wasn't just no. It was, <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, come on. It's not happening. And 
I would love for you to live to be 175, but it won't be smooth then either. It won't. If we are breathing on this planet before Jesus comes back and fixes it all, we will have problems. That's the way it works. He does not promise to take care of all of our problems. He promises to walk with us through it all. And I can't imagine anything I'd rather have than somebody that will never leave me and never forsake me. Amen? He goes on. He says, In our zeal to see people come to Christ, we often paint a picture of a wonderful and abundant Christian life that effectively ignores, downplays, and even negates the harder teachings of Jesus. While that might speed along so-called decisions for Christ, it does little to prepare a fledgling disciple for what's ahead. In fact, it does the opposite. It sets the stage for disillusionment when things don't turn out so well. Your next blank is, if we're honest about our issues, people will see how great a Savior that Jesus is. Because what I like to do when I go to work is to, oh, I don't have any problems. No, everything's great. Yeah, everything's great. No, it's not. We've all got problems. Share your problems and then brag on Jesus. There's a reason I can get through this, because he's walking with me. But when we cover everything up and pretend that the Christian life is nice and rosy and pleasant all the time when it's not, we've just had a knockdown drag out in the parking lot with our spouse or our kids, everything's great. No, it's not. Eddie Haskell? It's not. You see me do that, you say, Eddie Haskell, I need you to do that to me. So good news or bad news? Well, Christianity is not a religion of gloom. Properly understood, it's a faith filled with hope and joy. And the fact is, righteous living often does bring great rewards in this life. And as Solomon so forcefully points out in the book of Proverbs, righteousness generally brings stellar results. But as we saw in an earlier lesson, his Proverbs aren't God's promises. They're God-inspired statements about how life generally works. So while righteous living may generally, is there a word I'm focusing on here? generally brings stellar results. It doesn't always. Here's your next blank. There is no guarantee. Life's going to be hard, guys. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. Jesus said in this world you will have... What? Trouble? Well, that doesn't sound like a loving God. (laughs) Sounds like a realist to me. This is what it's going to be. It's not going to be pretty every day. And when you hear well-dressed, slick-tongued devils stand up and tell you that everything is going to be great and rosy and you're going to be rich and healthy all the days of your life, turn the channel. Delete that bookmark. Unsubscribe from that email. That's garbage. And it does not line up with Christianity. And if you think it does, just wait a little while. And when it starts to rain and you start to get wet, you'll realize you've been holding an umbrella that doesn't have nearly enough fabric on it because it won't stand up. So there's some homework at the bottom of that section. Uh, Reading Psalm 73, you want to read about a guy that got serious with his conversations with God? Asaph did in Psalm 73. And then if you think, well, I don't know about this, Jim. I I still think God may bring good luck. You read those passages in number two, um, and then come, let's talk next Sunday night. I think you might... Sing a different tune. So I hope you see a theme with each of these dumb things. Take everything and test it against the truth of Scripture. 
Um, I saw a quote from Rick Warren last week. It said, God's not who you think he is. God is who he says he is. And sometimes that we try to put things on God that aren't really there. Um, there's no guarantees for an easy life. Let's not make that our goal. There's a picture I want you to look at here. It's a quote from uh, John Piper. He says, live dangerously for the one who loved you and died for you in his 30s. Don't throw your life away on the American dream of retirement. That's a tough one, isn't it? Because me, as a 37-year-old, I look at retirement and I go, man, it's going to get easier one day. It's going to get easier one day. And all of you that are retired are going, no, it's not, it doesn't. No, sorry. <laughs> Things worked out perfectly for you. You're in, you're in your family butch in retirement? No. Is Jesus walking with you through it? Isn't that awesome? All right, so i got one more example for God brings good luck. You may or may not be able to see this. You probably can't. Can you see this? Anybody know what this is? It's a piece of wire, yes. It goes on a musical instrument that was played on this stage uh, four Sunday mornings ago. I, do the, uh, I generally do the welcome here at this campus every other week or so. I hopped up on stage, did the welcome, asked everybody to shake hands, turned around, and I will usually speak to whoever's leading music this morning. It was Justin Bennett. He looked at me, he goes, come here, come here. I said, oh yeah, what you need? He pulls, turns his guitar over, pulls this piece of wire off and hands it to me. I said, what do you mean? What, 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 you going to be able to play? He said, yeah, I'll just change the notes and make it work. I can't imagine, right? Throw me a curveball in front of 400 people, and yeah, I'll just make it work, no problem. And I got to thinking about this. It's a great testimony to the fact that God doesn't bring good luck, right? He's serving Jesus, doing what he's supposed to be doing, where he's supposed to be doing it, and his instrument breaks. You know what God did? Gave him an opportunity to trust him. Gave me a sermon illustration. Good stuff. All right. Dumb thing number nine. A valley means a wrong turn. Have you ever been in a valley? You have. I don't even have to define it. You know what a valley... Okay, we'll just skip the definition part then. They're not fun. And many times I've found in my life, I turn to God in a valley. And many times I'll turn the other way in a valley and get angry. I'm going to read you an extended excerpt from the book. Osborne was going through a particularly painful valley in his life, and this is, his friends were coming up and giving him advice, saying, you need to get out of this. You need to change. You need to go move to a different place. This is his assessment. He said, a long-term valley could never be a part of God's long-term plan, was their thought. I'm not talking here about the kinds of valleys and trials that are completely out of our control, the medical issues, the tragedies, the injustices that we can do nothing about except suck it up, trust God, and endure. I'm talking about the kinds of valleys we can avoid or wiggle out of if we so choose. My friends assume that God's leading always takes us to the mountaintop. They realized that there would be an occasional hardship along the way, but they believed it would always be incidental, a short but necessary part of the process. Faced with a lingering valley, especially one with no apparent end in sight, they automatically assumed it meant a wrong turn. They were sure it would be gotten out of as soon as possible, no matter what it took to do so. And those who buy into this myth and end up living by it, pay a high price. Important spiritual lessons go wanting. Godly character is stunted. The myth excuses and even encourages self-centered decisions in the name of getting out of the pain as quickly as possible. It even truncates God's power. 
If we run away from every messy situation on the assumption that God can't be in it, we'll never experience the miraculous power of his deliverance. After all, here's your blank, a miracle needs a mess. We want to have miracles, right? Miracles are awesome. It's amazing. You ever had a miracle happen to you? I have. Um, I was in the 10th grade, 11th grade, went to the dentist, had cavity, this tooth back here. Dennis was busy. It wasn't hurting. He said, come back in a couple days, and we'll have that fixed. I was like, all right, cool. Came back in a couple days. He said, Jim, I can't find the cavity. What does that mean, Doc? He said, well, I probably looked at the wrong x-ray. I said, okay. Pull out the x-ray. He pulled out the x-ray. He took another x-ray. He said, these are your teeth, and they have changed in the course of a week. You do not have a cavity anymore. I said, cool. That's a miracle. I can be a saint now in the Catholic Church, just in case you're wondering. So that's awesome. We've got it documented. It's on tape. I set it in church. I'm good to go. Um, it may be little. It may be big. But a miracle needs a mess, right? Osborne goes on. It's part of the equation. Tough trials and help me Jesus experiences aren't always a lot of fun. But without them, there's not much need for God to show up. It's also a belief that hurts others. If we assume that long-term pain and hardship are totally unacceptable and automatically outside of God's will, then whatever harm or heartbreak that we may cause others in our haste to get out becomes mere collateral damage, an unfortunate but unavoidable part of our quest for happiness. Think of the guilt-free ease with which we break our culture, which with our culture breaks promises. Disappointing family, friends, or business business associates is no big deal if the commitment we make ends up being far costlier than we had imagined. We assume that everyone will understand. After all, we didn't know what we were getting into. And if they don't understand, well, we've got to do what we've got to do. So we break our word, or we hire a good lawyer to find us a technicality that will let us out. Consider the countless marriage vows broken on the assumption that staying in an unhappy marriage or unfulfilling marriage can't be God's will. For better or worse, has somehow become until I can't take it anymore. So when things get tough, we move on, convinced that God will understand and approve. And here's the kicker. Most of us understand that hardships, even long-term hardships, are a natural part of life. We know theoretically that God uses them to train us and equip us to build character and sometimes to carry out his will. That's Christianity 101. But something fundamentally changes, here's your blank, when the deep and lengthy valley is our valley. Has your advice ever changed when you were talking to somebody else about some situation that you yourself went through? Mine has. I've given advice in a scenario and said, I think this is what the Bible says about this space. And then weeks or months or years later, I experienced that. And that advice of obedience and stick it out, and it becomes very difficult when it's about me. Anybody ever experienced this? Nobody? Really? Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, This is hard stuff. The truths we so easily accept in theory and so quickly apply to others become difficult to fathom in our own life. Let's admit it. It's pretty hard to imagine any scenario in which an all-knowing and all-loving God would want us to endure a lengthy season of frustration and disappointment. That's why when we find ourselves or those we love mired in an externally, mired in an extended painful valley, we tend to immediately start looking for the quickest way out. We assume something must have gone terribly wrong. So what does a valley mean? Well, Osborne says to ask three questions when you're in a valley. The first is, why am I here? The second 
is how should I respond? And the third is what can I learn? So I've put a little grid on your handout there. So why am I here? How should I respond? What can I learn? Well, there's several different reasons on why I'm here. First, maybe God sent me. We've probably all had valleys that God sent us through to teach us a lesson that we needed to learn for some reason or another. It might be, I messed up. Dumb things that I do that help me end up in a valley. Not a fun place. You ever had one of those? Yep. And then the third is beyond my understanding, and we'll talk about that one in just a second. Now, once we know what kind of valley we're in, even if it's a valley that makes no sense, it's time to answer the second question, which is how should I respond? So if God sent me to a valley, what do you do? You tough it out. You obey. It's about obedience. It's about doing life with him. You've heard this poem, Footsteps, right? The one set of footprints is where he carried, yes. This is where he walks with us. If I messed up, what do I do? Better change directions. Sometimes when it's appropriate to realize that I have sinned and I need to repent. Repent means turn around and go a different way. If it's beyond my understanding, well, that's where faith and obedience come in. So what can I learn in these? Well, God has a plan. And when I messed up, don't go there again. Right? My sister has a scar on her arm. Uh, we were playing one Sunday morning. I was about five or six. She was three or four. Uh, we were running through our house. We had uh, kerosene heaters in our house. It was a very cold winter morning, and Dad had the kerosene heater turned up all the way. And he told us a thousand times, don't play around the kerosene heaters because you'll get burned. Right? Well, we were chasing each other around the kerosene heaters because we were kids and uh, disobedient little heathens. Um, and I'm chasing her. I'm chasing her. And she slips, and she falls, and she lands on the kerosene heater. And you know the ones I'm talking about, right? The white beige round jobs with the protective metal around the edge. But we had taken that off. And she landed square on that. And I will never forget the smell or the sound. It was awful. And she still has a scar from that. And the don't go there again is very personal for us around kerosene heaters. Neither of us play around kerosene heaters. I would jerk a knot in my kid's head if they played around a kerosene heater because I have seen the pain and the long-term damage and the scars that result. And some of us have life experiences that are very much like kerosene heaters. When you get close to that thing, no, I am not going there again. I know that can be of no good for me. Some of you have struggled with alcohol at some point in your lives, and you know if I go back to that, no, no. Life gets bad very quickly. Don't go there again. So what are some examples of these? Well, God sent me. Jesus' disciples in the boat. Remember when they took a little boat ride and Jesus took a little nap? They were sent through that. Daniel. You think it was fun standing alone for God? I don't think it was fun standing alone for God. What about I messed up? Uh, Israel. Whole Old Testament. 
cycle, 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 cycle. I mean, just don't go there again. How many times did God have to give the exact same prophet the exact same message? And when that guy died, he had to tell another guy to do the exact same message. I don't think it would be this difficult to be a prophet in the Old Testament. You just pick up what the last guy said and say the exact same thing because you're going to need to memorize that because they're going to do the exact same sin over and over and over again, right? What about beyond my understanding? How about the book of Job? Here's my question for you. Did Job ever know why all that happened? He had this great conversation with God at the end. Well, kind of one-sided, wasn't it? Um, He had a conversation with God at the end. Did God give him all the answers? No. The beautiful thing about the literature of Job is that God pulls back the curtain of heaven for us so that we can see the conversations that we never get to be a part of. The conversation between the devil and God himself. I mean, there should have been theme music with that one, right? I can just imagine the angels just pumping out the organ and just music's coming up and there's sound effects and there's... No, probably not. Um, Job never understood why. He lost his kids and everything he owned. Never understood why. And his wife, oh, his wife was awesome, right? Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. There you go, yeah. Um, Judges one nineteen. there's a good Bible trivia for you. you. You read Judges chapter 1 and you get to verse 19. And come back and tell me why you think verse 19 happened the way it did. Here's Osborne's summary. Never judge the appropriateness of obedience by the short-term or even lifelong results. Hopefully you've seen a theme as we've gone through these weeks of no matter what happens, we are called to be obedient. We are called to be faithful. We are called to do what is right. Uh, One of the schools that I went to for college, the founder had a saying, he said, uh, do right until the stars fall. And if they fall, continue to do right. Just do right. So you've got some homework here as well. Several different valleys that are listed in the scripture. And then number 10, dumb thing number 10, dead people go to a better place. So I've got a question. Have you ever been to a funeral where you were relatively certain that the dearly departed was now in hell? Yep. Did anybody say that? And there's a couple reasons that we don't say that. One is um, Christianity is not about being a jerk, right? It's not about being um, arrogant with information. Jesus harped on this concept to speak the truth in love for a reason. There's a right place and a right time and a right way to share information. We all agree? Yeah, because we've all been shared certain information at the wrong place, at the wrong time, by the wrong attitude, and it didn't go well. Sometimes the police get involved in those scenarios. Right? It really doesn't go well. Osborne's describing a funeral. He's talking about a funeral where he's pretty sure the person in the casket is not in heaven. There's one step that's a step too far. It's, a step, it's the point at which I cringe and bite my lip if I'm in the crowd. It's the point at which I refuse to participate if I'm the guy up front officiating. It's when wicked Uncle Ernie is described as being in a better place. And he's not. Jesus and the Bible are quite clear. The wicked don't go to a better place. There's a real hell. It's not the devil's playground. It's not a perpetual wild party. It's Satan's worst nightmare. 
And to our modern-day sensibilities, the exclusivity of Christ, the reality of hell, and the need for a salvation that includes personal piety have all become passe, if not downright offensive. And it's not just our culture that rejects these ideas, so do many Christians. The widespread denial of any sort of actual judgment or a place called hell is nowhere more evident than when we deal with death. It's here that it becomes obvious that funeral assurances are much more than a social custom. For many, they're a deeply held core belief. You ever struggled at this space? When you go into a funeral and you know, as much as we can know, because by your fruits you shall know them, and if you're planting seeds for the other guy's team, maybe this isn't a follower of Jesus, right? How do you, how do you handle that? What does that look like? Because that's, talk about awkward, right? I mean, how do you share your faith when... The guy in the coffin didn't have any. That's a challenge. And I would caution us to speak the truth. And it needs to be, nice sound effect, God, flooded in love. It needs to be covered and smothered in love. One of the things that I love about baptisms, especially in a Baptist church, is that the person goes all the way under. It's a complete and total covering. It represents death, right? Completely dead and then alive. It's a beautiful thing. I was part of a church one time where the preacher would baptize you and he, he would like jerk you up out of the water because of this, now you're alive. And these people would come and the water would go splashing everywhere and everybody would cheer. And I was like, that's kind of scary and cool at the same time. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and the reality is there's truth that's supposed to be spoken. Would we agree? Does everybody acknowledge this is kind of an awkward topic? Dead people go to a better place? Okay. Let's keep reading. Osborne says, here's your next blank. Eternal destiny isn't determined by where we wish people would go. Right? Because if it was, we don't need the cross. And we certainly don't need Jesus. Because we would all wish that we would all go to heaven because I'm special. I'm the most important person in my universe. It's not determined by where, it's not determined by where everyone says they went. So what's the myth behind the myth? Well, the myth behind the myth is it's the, belief that, it's the belief that shall not be named, the conviction that all roads eventually lead to the same place despite what Jesus may have said. And this is a real problem for us because in America we've become so culturally, uh, politically correct all the time that it's not polite to speak the truth about hell. Right? So let me be clear. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And there's not an option C. We all will go to one of those two places. And only one of those two places, despite what Rob Bell says. Once you get into one, you're there. And if you're sent to the other, it's not good. So why is this important? Well, the cross and salvation are central to the gospel. And once we lose any real concept of hell, the natural consequence is more than just putting us at odds with Scripture. It eventually devalues the cross, redefines salvation, and turns obedience into an extra credit spiritual add-on. Right? I went to Outback for lunch today. It was a very good lunch. Had a six-ounce sirloin, and at the very bottom of the menu, um, what did I also have? I had a salad. You had a choice of a super salad. You had a side, and at the very bottom of the menu, there were these add-ons. You could add shrimp. You could add lobster. You could add there was something else that you could add. Um, several different things that you could add on. 
Let me tell you, obedience is not an optional elective add-on in the Christian life. It is mandatory. It is what we are called to do. It is the proof that we love and obey God. So what happened to evangelism? One of the worst side effects is what this myth does to evangelism. The first one is a loss of urgency. Well, they'll go to heaven anyway, right? If there's no hell, they'll go to heaven anyway. A fear of coming off as arrogant. Who are we to say that Jesus is the only way? We're Christians. That's who we are. And we're called to speak the truth. In love. Put your arm around him when you say it. Evangelism becomes a secondary priority. Physical injustice needs come first. I'm going to make some of you mad here, and that's okay, because I made some of you mad the whole time, and that's all right. Um, Is it good to build wells in Africa for those who don't have water? Absolutely. That's fantastic. But what happens many times with some of these organizations is that it becomes all about the social justice. It becomes all about the physical need. And it becomes nothing about Jesus and what he did. And when we get those two things mixed up, what we're effectively saying is that the gospel is optional and it's secondary. And this is a problem. The gospel is always primary. There's nothing more important than where we will spend eternity. Wow. There is nothing more important than where we will spend eternity. There we go. Osborne goes on, he says, When conversion becomes unnecessary, then digging wells, eradicating disease, and protecting the environment obviously take precedence. It's not long until compassion and liberation are no longer viewed as the essential other side of evangelism coin. They become the only side of the coin that matters. Dead people don't go to a better place. That's actually never true. There's two options. There's hell. Heinous, awful, hideous, eternal torture. You never get out. It's heart-wrenching. The most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. We can have the government shut down for years, and that pales in comparison. There's hell. And then there's not a better place. There's not an upgrade. There's a spectacular, unbelievable, undescribable, beyond our imagination, place where God is forever. And that's heaven. Anybody that says heaven's a better place, come on, upgrade your verbiage. This is a place where God is, the one who thought of the entire universe and then pulled it off, the one who saw us in our sin and then sacrificed himself to restore a a relationship with him. This is heaven. This is where he is. It's not a better place. It's an outstanding place. It's phenomenal. I don't have the vocabulary, and I have a pretty decent vocabulary, to describe and articulate how amazing this place is. It gets big time better.
whatever your greatest word for positive is, heaven's better than that. Amen? Amen. So, ten dumb things. Those are the ten. Now, I had several people ask me, are there more? Oh, goodness gracious, yes, there are more. Um, It is now 6 o'clock. I think I have kept you uh, long enough. So, again, thank you very much. Don't come up to me and tell me you appreciated this. Come up to that beautiful little lady uh, in the pink sweater in the back and tell her. uh, That's my wife, and she needs the encouragement. So she's wrangled the kids for a while. So, uh, Stand up with me, if you will, and we'll be dismissed in prayer. I do want to say thank you again for coming and your faithfulness. Um, It is very encouraging to me uh, and to those around you to see your presence here tonight. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you love us so much that you don't want us to stay the same, that you don't want us to mire around in our erroneous doctrine and beliefs, but you've given us the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to guide us and to, to show us what truth is and how to live it. I thank you for Larry Osborne and his works that he's written, especially this one. I pray your blessing on his church and his family, that you would just continue to use him to expand your kingdom. Father, I pray for those of us here tonight that you would allow the, the truth of the Scripture to adjust our theology to be in line with your theology. However difficult or challenging or heart-wrenching or problematic that may be for us, I ask that you would give us the strength to listen and obey you regardless of where you lead. Father, you and you alone know the future. And many times we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you keep us safe tonight and bring us back quickly so we can learn more about you and how to be more like Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen.